This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 680. This week, we welcome Dr. Allison Bales of Energy Vanguard. We're going to talk about his new book called A House Needs to Breathe, or Does It? We will talk about his thoughts on proper ways to make homes comfortable, healthy, and energy efficient. Dr. Bales is widely known for his excellent writing in the Energy Vanguard blog. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc. TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, April Air, April AIRE.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to report that Doug Conan with Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, was first to identify 13 billion as within the range of the estimated number of connected IoT or Internet of Things devices in existence today. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, November 4th, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the Ohio State grad student whose accidental discovery was the breakthrough in creating our most popular insulating material. Back to you, Joe. Well, it's it's hard to believe, but it's been almost 10 years since we've had Dr. Allison Bales on the show. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, great to have you back. Well, thanks, Joe. Yeah, it's good to be back. You know, we uh, we talked back then about something we're going to talk more about today. Is energy efficiency compatible with good indoor air quality? And I noticed in uh, going through the table of contents for your book here that you really focus pretty heavily on indoor environmental quality. And, um, you know, I was I was happy to see that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's where you need to start with any of this stuff. And uh, you, you can't focus just on energy efficiency. Uh, you have to focus on the big picture, what it is that people need from a house. And that's why the, the first section of the book is, tall, is called Start at the End, where I talk about indoor environmental quality and, and all that good stuff. Um, uh, uh, one thing I like to tell people is that um, 
you know, a lot of people get into this stuff through energy efficiency, uh, but energy efficiency is the gateway drug to to building science and and indoor environmental quality and the big picture thinking. I like that. It's the gateway drug. So, who is this book written for? Good question. So, it's um, it's not a book for absolute beginners. Although absolute beginners will get something out of it, their eyes will glaze over in in places. But there's certainly a lot of good stuff in there for people who know almost nothing about it. Um, and it's not an engineering textbook, although uh, a lot of engineers have ordered the book, and uh, I hope we'll find it helpful. Um, it's it's a book for people who are fairly early on the building science learning curve. They're you know they you know they may be um, uh, an HVAC technician or uh, an installation contractor, a builder, a homeowner who's having a house built or or improving a house. They could be a real estate agent, a, an appraiser. A lot of a lot of different backgrounds of, of people coming into this will benefit from it because there's it's it, as i say in the subtitle there it's an introduction to building science not an absolute 101 introduction more like a 201 introduction um so um it, a lot of people can get something out of it well and i you know i i haven't had a chance to read the book yet i'll be clear up front about that in fact we're going to get make sure i get a, a copy i want to get one for my son because i think um, he does construction here, and I think a guy like him, this is perfect for. He, he's he got a little background. You know, he's been hanging out with me for a little while. He understands building science a little bit, but uh, I think this will help kind of tie it all together, at least from the way I noticed it was written and 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 the chapters and the way they're aligned. You have both parts and chapters, and the, the three big parts are start at the end, the building enclosure, and the mechanical system. I, I like how you you keep that real simple. And then within each of those parts, you go into more detail. So um, first of all, what, what made you divide into three parts like that? Oh gosh. Yeah. You know, one of the hardest parts about doing this was, was organizing the whole thing, you know, trying to figure out, um, you know, what material needs to be in there and then where does the material go? How am I going to organize this? And um, you know, I, the 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 parts I, I think are really uh, were the easiest because starting at the end is natural and you know Robert Bean is is a huge proponent of this has had a big influence on on my thinking in this area he he's got this saying that he um, uses all the time design for people and good buildings will follow and that's that's kind of where I I started with. Um, and then another thing that early on really impacted my thinking is that the um, you know you can think of a, from the building science perspective you can think of a house as uh, you know made of two things the you know the building enclosure and the mechanical systems now there's a lot more to it than that of course but from building science that's that's a good way to divide things up and um, I I think on a like a Saturday morning home improvement show a long time ago I heard somebody say uh was it uh the building enclosure is the bathtub and the the heating and cooling system or the HVAC systems are the the faucet. So um that that's where that came from and um and then the chapters kind of fell out of that but then you know deciding what goes in what chapter and how many chapters i have and and that evolved over time as i started writing it 
I think what really caught my attention quickly was in chapter one, what was, what's the purpose of a house? You, you immediately go into Stuart Brand's shearing layers of change. Yeah. And I'm, I don't think our audience will be completely familiar with that. So I've asked John to put a graphic together for that. And I'd like you to kind of talk about the shearing layers of change and why they, it appears to me they made a big impression on you. Yeah. So it comes from Stuart Brand's book. And Stuart Brand, in case you're not familiar with the name, is a really smart guy who's done, he's had an incredible, amazing career. He's been on the forefront of all kinds of stuff in the, um, in the sixties, he was the, the guy who spearheaded the, the whole earth catalog. And then the, the, um, the later versions of that that came out and he, he's been involved with computers in the eighties. He started a computer network or was involved in the starting of it called the well, if you remember that. Hmm. And, um, he's done a lot of really good stuff in the early nineties. He published a book called how buildings learn. And this this graphic is is directly from his book, and I've got a version of it in my book that we adapted. Yeah, it's a, a wonderful book, and he he talks about how buildings evolve over time. Um, the ones that don't get torn down, of course, you know, we don't see now the ones that were torn down along the way, and especially the ones that didn't last very long at all. Um, those aren't around, but the ones that do last go through lots of changes in their lifetimes, and. He, um, he's got a great quote early in the book. He says that the fundamental problem of buildings is that they're constantly trying to tear themselves apart. <laughs> and, and, and part of the reason for this is these, what, what he calls the shearing layers of change. Um, and you can see them there, the, you know, starting with the site, you've got the site, you've got the skin going from outside to inside, the structure, the services, the space plan and the stuff, the six S's and the, um, you know these these different layers change at different rates, and so you, the you know the the um, the density of the the lines and the uh, um, and the, the number of arrowheads gives you an idea of, of the quickness of uh, how uh, a layer changes. So you can see, of course, the stuff on the inside changes the fastest, and then the space plan changes next fastest, and the um, the structure and the site are the slowest changing parts of a house. So this is this is it's a it's an important way of thinking about houses, and it does impact building science as well. Yeah, I agree. I think it. You know, looking back at my own background in dealing with buildings, and even now with my son doing construction work, you know, he's commonly dealing with one of those layers, and. Um, when you address it in that manner, I think people better understand it. And, and I think that's probably why you kind of set up, set up the beginning of the book with that, you know, the, the shearing layers of change. And then you go into immediately indoor environmental quality, which I thought, wow, you know, a book on, uh, you know, construction and building and houses immediately goes into indoor environmental quality. I thought this is, this is fantastic. So you're starting at the end with making sure you have good indoor environmental quality. Um, then you go into integrating sustainability with indoor environmental quality and saving energy. So those are, those are key components in the, the purpose of the house. Um, what kind of set your thinking in that way? Um, oh, I guess everything that's happened to me in my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
you know, as I said, the, you know, Robert Bean's philosophy of, of designing for people. And, and then, you know, when you do that, you end up with a good building. And, and Joe Stebrick says the same kind of thing. I mean, when you, when you design a good building that controls the flows of heat, air, and moisture, and don't focus on just energy efficiency, you get the energy efficiency, but you also get these other benefits. You get comfort, you get um, indoor air quality, you get durability. And um, so it, it all goes together. You can't think of these things separately. You know, you're you're very involved with the energy efficiency world. I, I don't even know what they call themselves anymore, Allison. If you, you could let me know, <laughs> because that group has really uh, expanded quite a bit into indoor environmental quality. And in your early days, you built your own home. You worked at uh, uh, several other, you know, very uh, high performance type building companies uh, and you know, I'm wondering from your own experience, what kind of, did you have like a, a project where things kind of, you thought were going to go a certain way, but they didn't because maybe you hadn't considered things like indoor environmental quality? Um, well, I mean, the house that I built is a good example. It, um, so 20 years ago, 21 years ago, I, I built a house and it was an amazing project. It launched me into my new career. I had been teaching physics. I was teaching physics at the time and um, I got into it. I had never built anything bigger than a bookcase and I took on this project and learned a whole lot along the way. Didn't know much building science at the time, didn't know mechanical design. And so learned uh a lot on the way. Uh, one thing I learned is that doing things in the right order in construction turns out to be really, really important because mm -hmm. if you do them in the wrong order, they become impossible or very expensive to fix later. Uh, not Well, not impossible. I mean, you can always tear down and start over, but uh, you know they become more and more expensive uh, as you do them out of the, the right order. Um, I didn't... Uh, I, I, and I lived in the house three years, and it was wonderful and, and the most comfortable house I've ever lived in. The Probably the biggest regret I had was that you know, I didn't know much about mechanical systems and mechanical design at the time. I, I knew that I needed a load calculation, and so I hired a contractor who did a manual J, and his manual J came out to um, about 1,000 square feet per ton, which is twice as much as the typical rule of thumb used by contractors. So that was good, but it was still um, twice the size of the system that I needed for the house. When I did a, a real manual J load calculation myself later, um, well, I mean, he did a real one, but contractors are afraid to undersize things. So they, they will add load here and there. And, and when you do it correctly, you still end up with a little bit oversized system, but um, I found that I needed half the size of the system that I had put in. I had three tons, and I really needed only one and a half. You know, that kind of leads to something. I was going to do this in a lightning round later, but I think this is a good time. In the first show uh, we did with you, we, we talked about HVAC equipment, and during that show, you, your key point was that improvements in HVAC equipment are lagging behind other building materials and products. Is that still true today? 
You know, last December, I wrote an article that says, uh, I think the title of the article was something like, building enclosures have improved more than mechanical systems. So yes, it's still true. I um, And I wrote that article because I had visited a new construction house built by a production builder near where I live. And, um, you know, they have gotten really good at the air barrier. Um, some of the, the moisture control, the water control layer stuff is, you know, still lacking. But, you know, they've gotten really good at the air barrier because of one simple thing. In Georgia now, we have had required blower door testing for over a decade now. And, you know, the... Yes, you can lie. You can you can cheat on your reports, but if you if you get a real blower door test, you know the number that you get doesn't lie if it's done correctly. Um, so the building enclosures, the, the air barriers have improved tremendously, I think, and uh, the mechanical systems. Eh, there's still a whole lot wrong there. Well, later in the book, you talk about, you know, creating a healthy home and the keys to indoor air quality, and, and you go over air tightness, moisture control, source control, filtration, mechanical ventilation. Um, I noticed there you said that air tightness, the contractors have gotten much better, but with respect to moisture control, I get the impression you don't feel like we've come along as far on that as we have on air tightness. Why do you think that is? Um. I think it's just because there's an easy test for air tightness. We do a blower door test and we get a number and we have a threshold that we're trying to hit. And, you know, as, um, as the codes have changed, that threshold has gotten better. So we have to hit a lower and lower number for air leakage. So I think that's the, the main reason. There's not, a, there's not a simple test you can do for, for moisture control or for, for mechanical systems the way there is for air tightness. You know, with the advent of the, the use of more um, mini-split heat pump, would you consider that an, an improvement over the years? I mean, there are more of them available now. They seem to be very efficient. Um, you can have them either ducted or non-ducted. That seems like a bit of an improvement in the mechanical side of things. Uh, so, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that mechanical, the mechanical side hasn't improved at all. There, there's definitely improvement there, and, and you know, there there is a test that they have to do there as well. In addition to the, the testing the the building enclosure for air tightness, they have to test the ducts for air tightness as well, and or um, get them inside the enclosure, so that all the leakage would be inside. Um, and yeah, I mean, I love variable capacity, many split equipment. I have it in my house. We have it in our office. That's we, when we do residential HVAC design. Most of the jobs that we do, that's what we're specifying, and it's it's really really good because I mean, number one, the the heating load on a house in the winter, the cooling load on a house in summer isn't just one number. It's changing all the time. You know, the, at nighttime it's really cold in winter, and so that's when you get your peak. Uh, heating load and and as the sun comes out the next day uh, or even if the sun doesn't come out it's usually you know warmer in the day in the winter and in the summertime likewise we have temperature changes throughout the day that change the load on the house but if you have fixed capacity equipment your equipment can't respond to that it's just all on or all off and uh, the only way it responds is by the amount of time that it runs with the the variable capacity equipment, you can get much longer run times and, and that evens out the airflow and the heating and cooling distribution, which leads to better comfort. 
the, the one complaint I get from the indoor environmental quality people about the mini splits is the difficulty in cleaning them and that people don't realize you have to maintain and clean them. Do you hear that at all? Or are you, is there something that you can tell our listeners with respect to maybe there's better guidance on how to clean them coming out? Um, yes. And when you, so that just clues me into another thing. Uh, so when you're saying mini split there, it sounds to me like in your mind, you are thinking of a ductless unit, a duct, usually a ductless wall mounted unit. Correct. Um, and, and yes, those are difficult to clean. Um, they have little filters, which aren't great. Uh, and they, they, yeah, you, you have to, you have to keep them clean and that that's really important and, and they can get nasty inside them and they, microbial growth so that yeah they have to be kept clean um some of the some of the ones are are difficult to clean um but there's you know many splits are more than just ductless units in my house i have many splits and i have got two two outdoor units and three indoor units two of the three indoor units are ducted units and you know they're a different shape and, and size than the standard air handlers but they're in terms of difficulty of cleaning the coils and stuff they're about the same but and that's that's also not easy because you have you've got to get inside the air handler to do that and that's yeah it's it's always trouble to get in there you, you mentioned another very important component to any mechanical system and that is the filtration and i noticed you got a section in the book on filtration are are we getting any new uh, improvements on filtration for these mini splits? Um, with the ductless units, uh, not so much that I've seen, but with ducted units, uh, I mean, I've got low static, which means, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of fan power um, uh, air handlers. And I'm running the air through MERV 13 filters, and I've got very, very, very low pressure drop. Uh, so the, you know, the, the maximum pressure rated pressure is supposed to be 0.2 inches of water column. And I'm, mine are running at 0.14 with MERV 13 filtration. So very low pressure. We, we can do very low pressure drop across high efficiency MERV 13 filters, but it requires sizing them properly. And, uh, you know, our rule of thumb, which I, I, I think I learned this from John Simmelhack, who's a really smart guy in Virginia, does a lot of really great work is, uh, two square feet of filter area, and that's just length times width, not the whole pleated thing pulled apart and stretched out, but length times width of the filter itself. Um, two square feet of that per, for each 400 cubic feet per minute of airflow, and that'll get you a low pressure drop. Interesting. And with respect to the the ducted mini splits, what what kind of cost are we looking at there versus, I mean, the typical mini split that's non-ducted, you're looking at maybe 2,500, three grand, 3,500 installed even. Um, what are we looking at for the, I've never put in a, uh, a ducted version. How much is, how much are those? Um, well, the, um, talking about pricing of equipment these days is, is difficult. We, uh, we just got an email from one of our clients who, uh, and I don't know how many systems he was having put in, but it was like double what he was expecting. Um, mm. And it was, 
now the whole quote was i think he said it was like 35,000 or 40,000 dollars uh that was for all the equipment and the installation and the ductwork and everything uh, so but that's uh, and i don't and i don't know what size his house was the um the systems that i had put in my house well i got them through scratch and dent and they were <laughs> inexpensive that way but um Three years ago when I got them, before all the inflation and supply chain issues we've had now, uh, they would have been maybe $3,000 for the one outdoor unit and two indoor ducted air handlers. It's not too bad. Yeah. And now that um, – I'm not uh, – yeah, maybe three or $4,000 of equipment um, from the from from a contractor. Well, going back to the outline from the book here, you, you start at the end, then you go over the, the purpose of a house, IEQ, integrating sustainability with IEQ, then saving energy. Let's talk a little bit more about integrating sustainability with IEQ. You know, you hear a lot about sustainability, but I've rarely seen people try to integrate sustainability and IEQ, at least not in a book that I've read recently here. Tell us a little more more of your thoughts on that topic. Um, gosh, what did I write in that part? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, well, I'm, I'm going to guess uh, what I said is that you know, I IEQ has to come before um, energy efficiency and and things like that. So we, we've got to we've got to focus on what the people need, and but we also have to take the big picture view and we want that you know sustainability as well so energy efficiency is a big part of that and i i think you know chapter 4 i believe um chapter 4 is all about energy energy use in the home yeah so i talked a little bit about decarbonization and and climate change and stuff in there um so cuz yeah i mean we've got to focus on the people first i mean we 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 need to make sure that the people are going to be happy and healthy and, uh, you know, they can sleep at night um, because they, they, you know, they knew enough not to bolt that outdoor unit for their mini split heat pump right outside the bedroom wall, which creates resonance and keeps them on edge all night. <laughs> well, you hit a, you hit one that really had, comes home to me. <laughs> yep. I put it right on the bedroom wall out there. Yeah. I got to fix that. Uh, yeah, so you're getting the vibrations and the the noise oh, transmission. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it, it doesn't happen every time, but there there are vibration isolators that can help with that. So you can you you may be able to keep it there. But yeah, whenever you bolt a an outdoor unit onto the wall of a wood frame structure, um, you you may have some noise and vibration issues. Absolutely, I have a yeah. log home, and even with those eight inch log uh, uh, yellow pine, it's boom. You know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Cliff, you got a text question? Yeah, we do. Uh, the text question really dealt with EMFs and the fact that everyone just seems to be really excited about sensors and, you know, they're concerned about health issues and so on and so forth. And, you know, with all these Wi-Fi devices, are they, you know, are we overlooking a potential problem, uh, you know, that we're going to realize down the road? Great question. Um, well, that, I mean, that's a good question, and that's an issue I I don't know much about. I I, I mean, I've read that and heard about people who are uh, sensitive to electromagnetic fields, and 
Um, I, I, yeah, I, I just don't know about that one. I mean, but we, I mean, we've had electrified homes for a century now, and and we've had um, very complex electronic circuitry in our homes for half a century. Uh, so, the, the, most people seem, the, the great majority of people seem not to to have a problem with that. For people who do, I I, I just don't know anything about that. You know, it's, it's it's interesting that um, you know we're 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 hearing more about indoor environmental quality with with respect to homes and people's concerns about indoor environmental quality. And I noticed, right, like I said, right away that you you put that right up at the top uh, of one of your concerns, but uh, you don't hear much about electromagnetic fields and and things of that nature, at least with with respect to indoor environments. Um, not as much as I thought you would hear. Uh, and maybe it's because, like you said, you know, you, you, there hasn't been an explosion of people showing issues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it just occurred to me that um, Better Call Saul uh, touches right. on that issue. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Because um, Saul's brother, brother uh, right. has, you know, was sensitive to that in the show. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at the end, I wasn't <laughs> – they, gosh, it's been a while since I've seen that episode now, but it seems like they made it out to be um, uh, a fake issue because I, um, Saul planted some electronic device in the room and his brother didn't respond to it the way he expected. Or I, I, I don't remember. Anyway, yeah, it, that, that yeah. issue has made it into a popular show. And I think it will be coming up more and more as we, you know, as we see these buildings and homes, they're going to have more sensors. Those sensors are going to be connecting to other things. And, um, you know, it's something to keep an eye on. It's one thing that we've been, we've been trying to keep an eye on here. Let's talk a little bit about um, getting comfortable. You mentioned Robert Bean, and I, I agree. He's one of the guys that has really influenced a lot of people when it comes to comfort in, in indoor environments. And you have a, a chapter on getting comfortable. Um, one of the things is naked people need building science. I'm just curious what what, what you uh, what you wrote about in there. Yeah, so I wrote an article, um, gosh, in 2011 called "Naked People Need Building Science," and um, that so I start off that chapter with that article, and it's uh, it's it's about how important radiant energy is because. A lot of people think, oh, all we need is, you know, the right temperature and, and maybe the right humidity if we're in the southeast and talking about cooling. But, you know, there's a this huge focus just on air temperature. But comfort is, is a lot more than just the air temperature. And it's a lot more than, than just air temperature and humidity. There's also the radiation that happens. I mean, our bodies are heat engines. We have this metabolism going on and, and we're constantly giving off heat. Even in wintertime, we are giving off heat. We, we need constant cooling. In wintertime, it's just we don't want to cool off too quickly. So if you take off all your clothes and walk around inside your house and you've got no insulation in the walls and single-pane windows, you're not going to be comfortable um, because you're radiating a lot of heat away, and those walls and windows are just sucking it up, and they're not radiating much back to you. So that that two-way transfer of, of radiant heat is really important, and uh, um, it's it's a more important factor than the air temperature. You can you can 
be naked inside a house with uninsulated um, building enclosure and bad windows and be uncomfortable on a cold day, even if the temperature inside is 75 or 80 degrees, you, you mm-hmm. might still be uncomfortable because of that radiant heat transfer. So that's, that's what that's all about. I can attest to that one in my home here. We, I live on a slab in a pretty cold climate up in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And uh, if you don't get heat down close to that slab, I don't care what the temperature of the air is, you're going to be cold. Um, number one, you got to wear a pair of slippers uh, because that helps to separate you a little bit from that slab. Number two, I find, and I know people don't like carpet, but Frankly, in some areas of, of my home, we use carpet because it's much more comfortable in the winter. And I don't think people think about those things sometimes when they're when they're dealing with building, you know, new construction or remodeling existing buildings. Yeah. Oh, um, speaking of, of carpet and rugs on the floor, um, Robin Pender is a building physicist in England, and she recently posted something online about. Uh, and she does a lot of historical stuff uh, with historical buildings. And she she posted something about some research on how people kept warm a long time ago in these these old stone buildings, you know, castles and things. Um, and the way they did it was tapestries. In yep. the wintertime, they had all these hooks around the castle, and they'd hang the tapestries in wintertime to cover those walls, and that blocks the radiant path. It's a it's a radiant. The tapestries were a radiant barrier. They block that radiant path, and and the tapestry, even though it, it may be um, closer to the same temperature of the wall, the wall than to you, um, it's not going to radiate. I mean, it's 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 not going to suck up as much heat out of you as the stone wall would. So, um, yeah, rug rugs on the on the floor can make a big difference. A car, carpet can make a big difference in that case. And we do the same thing here. I've got a log home and it's, you know, there's no insulation in the log walls and, and you put up some, some tapestries or, you know, other yeah. things. You've got to watch behind them, make sure they don't get moldy. You've got to wash them just like yeah. carpet. When you have carpet, you've got to make sure you, I use a HEPA vacuum. You get it cleaned on a regular basis. You take good care of it. But, uh, you know, we, we ought to make trade-offs with respect to, you know, comfort and indoor environmental quality. Hey, let's stop here. Go to halftime. Thank our sponsors. We'll be right back with the second half of Dr. Allison Bales. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the iicrc a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation, 
for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E, And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back. We've got Dr. Bales. We're talking about his his new book here, and uh, a home needs to breathe, or does it? Let's uh, we, we covered part one pretty well. Part two is the building enclosure. Part three is mechanical systems. I kind of like to jump into part two, the building enclosure for a moment. I want to start with the title. Um, a house needs to breathe or does it? I know what I think the answer is, Allison. Tell us your answer. My answer is no. The house doesn't need to breathe. And um, I've been throwing a lot of quotes at you. I've got another one. This is a really good one. Um, James Peters, um, somebody uh, that I know in New Zealand, has um, uh, likes to say, if you find yourself inside something that's breathing, get out. You've been eaten. <laughs> you have been eaten. So um, the, the reason I chose this title is because, I mean, I've had a lot of it uh, seems like it's mostly builders. But it's not always builders talk, you know, say, Oh, a house needs to breathe. We shouldn't make them so airtight. And, and they blame all kinds of problems on, you know, houses that are too tight. So um, the, the, if they're saying that for indoor air quality, the, you know, one of the big problems with that is, okay, so we're going to leave a bunch of random leaks in the building enclosure to let air just leak in from wherever it can. So, you know, those holes between the house and the garage are going to let that nice air from the garage come in with all the exhaust fumes and the pesticides and whatever else is out there. Or from the the moldy crawl space under the house or the dirty attic where that air is being sucked through the dead squirrel on top of the top plate. Um, So that, I mean, that's not good air. Uh, So that's that's one reason I don't like the, the word breathe here. Um, another reason is people use that word for in two different ways in relation to houses. Number one, they use it, like I just said, you know, the house should be leaky. It needs to breathe. It needs to have lots of air movement through the enclosure. And number two, they use it um, for drying. A house needs to breathe. And in, in other words, it needs to be able to dry out. Well, I do agree. Houses need to be able to dry out. Um, but the word breathe is very confusing there. So let's let's just drop the word breathe and uh, and talk about drying uh, and air tightness. We, we find the same problem with our customers. They, they will say, well, no, doesn't a house need to breathe? And I, I agree that it doesn't need to breathe, but maybe I guess I would say it needs to breathe, but it needs to breathe the right way. Um, you need to have the right pathway coming in. You're going to need ventilation of some kind, typically. And uh, as long as that's properly planned and designed, I think it'll work just fine. The other thing I noticed in your in this chapter is you go over the controlling um, control layers, okay? And you talk about integrating control layers with shearing layers. I wonder if you could talk about that for a moment. I, you know, we've seen a couple different ways of defining the control layers how do you f- define them the, well the control layers are the the parts of the the building enclosure that 
control the flow of heat, the flow of air, and the flow of moisture. And moisture comes in two forms, liquid and vapor. So we need we need control layers um, to control these things. We want an air barrier that that um, reduces um, the air leakage to as close to zero as we can get, or as re as is reasonable. We want um, a thermal control layer that reduces the heat flow to as close to zero as we can get. We want a liquid water control layer that reduces the the, the you know the chance of liquid water getting into um, the building cavities and the assemblies um, as much as possible and vapor control is is more complex um, you know some some houses need a vapor control layer some houses don't some assemblies need them some some don't it depends on where you are uh, vapor control is more important in one way climates where all you're doing is heating or all you're doing is cooling. Um, in northern Canada, in a really cold climate where you never have used an air conditioner, uh, you, you may well, you probably, you will need some vapor control because um, diffusion of water vapor through materials then becomes important. Most of the water vapor problems though, are solved with an air barrier because Water vapor getting into a, a wall cavity, for example, and condensing on the backside of, of cold sheathing, most of that water vapor that gets in there is from air leakage, not through diffusion. When it is possible to get diffusion in really cold climates, and then we need some vapor control. Um, so, and, and it's actually, I should back, back up. It's not just really cold climates. It's also, I mean, even in you know, climate zone five, you need, you need vapor control. Um, so uh, vapor control is, is, is more complex. In the, in the more temperate climates, vapor, vapor control is less important. So um, let's see. And the question was about integrating. Well, then you were integrating yeah. that with, um, let's, let's see, you were integrating that layers. with the shearing layers, right? How do you, yeah. I think that's an interesting concept, but put the shearing layers up again, John, if you would. Yeah. Um, if I can share my screen, I can show you. Please do. Yeah, um, let's do that. What I, you know, this is a diagram from the book. Um, yeah, so here's, um, this is basically uh, Stuart Brand's version of it. This, this is our adaptation of it, same, same basic thing. And then I have another diagram at the beginning of chapter 11 where I added another layer. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't start with S. He's got all these S's, and I threw a C in there or a CL, but oh well. Uh, I see. You have the control layer in there. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the one of the big problems, and this is especially true with insulation, the thermal control layer. The insulation we throw in, in the cavities, you know, it's, it's, it's intermingled with the structure. It's in the, in the, um, in the stud cavities and the uh, joist cavities and rafter cavities. So we have these interruptions of, of, you know, we have framing and insulation, framing and insulation. And, and if you don't have continuous insulation anywhere, then you've got thermal bridges, which can lead to all kinds of problems, not just heat loss. And the, um, you know, ideal place to put all your control layers would be outside the structure. Uh, this is, you know, Joe Stebrick has uh, made it, um, uh, He's popularized the perfect wall a lot, and the perfect enclosure mm -hmm. would be where you do the same thing with the ceilings and floors. You put all the control layers on the outside, your your water control layer, vapor control layer, um, thermal, and um, air control layers. Put them all on the outside of the structure that 
that number one means that you can make them continuous if you do a, a really good job and pay attention. <laughs> and but it is easier to do it easier. from there yeah. than it is from inside. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also it can be less expensive and easier when you're dealing with renovations down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, uh, it can be. And um, it depends on, you know, what kind of renovation you have and what kind of house you have. If if you've got brick cladding on the outside and all your control layers are between the, um, the structure and the cladding, um, getting to them is more difficult. Yes. But when, when you when you have all the control layers on the outside of the structure, you're protecting the structure from the thermal cycling and the moisture cycling. If if you put your control layers inside or intermingle it with the structure, then then you know in U.S. and Canada we build with lightweight wood framing, and you know wood absorbs moisture; it can transfer heat. So if you if you have all your control layers on the outside you are protecting that structure from, from all that cycling of moisture and heat. <laughs> I've got a text here that kind of, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I'll just read it to you. You wrote an article, an article, 10 consequences of keeping your home really cold in the summer. And they are seeing more folks who don't believe those physics apply to them. Are we seeing a de-evolution in comfort physiology that requires this, or is this just some spoiled humans? <laughs> I think it has more to do with spoiled humans. I think a lot of people think they need the, those low temperatures just because that's what they're used to. But uh, I don't know. Don't ask me to name what the 10 consequences were right now. I probably couldn't list them all. But the, the I mean, the, it's, it's, it's a, a problem. Um, we've been called in to, to look at houses in, in humid climates, like coastal humid climates, really hot, really humid where um, they like to keep the house at 68 degrees at night and they're right on the water and the dew point is 80 degrees. So when you have an outdoor uh, mass of air with a dew point of 80 degrees and you're keeping the house at 60 degrees, you've got to have a, a perfect building enclosure to prevent problems because that very, very humid air getting anywhere in there can cause problems. And, um, you know, I've seen cases where people had to, uh, rip open walls of, of year-old houses in situations like this because, you know, number one, there was just there, there wasn't much leakage, but there was enough to get in there. Number two, they're running the the air temperature inside really low and keeping those surfaces cold below the dew point of the outdoor air. And um, and number three, they're not doing anything to to ventilate the house or, or keep a little bit of positive pressure in the house, which could mitigate some of the infiltration of humid air that causes those problems. So these people, I'm, I'm having a hard time picturing this. I'm, I'm in the North. Um, if you've got the relative humidity under control, you should be able to let the temperature go up without people really noticing. Is that accurate to say? Yeah. Um, yeah. Everybody has uh, slightly different comfort levels. Some people have significantly different comfort levels and you know our our metabolisms vary and um you know men generally run a higher metabolism than women um uh, large people run a higher metabolism than skinny people so there there are there is variation and and some people 
you know, I, I mean, I've seen people sweating when the temperature is 70 degrees and they're just sitting around. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not it's, 70. I don't know. It's, it seems to me that, um, that lowering the thermostat too much was one of the top 10 stupid things that northerners do in the south but i could be wrong that was one of joe steeple's old articles yeah yeah hey let's go to the roundup the roundup is brought to you by april air providing healthy humidity ventilation and air purity solutions for new and existing homes april air healthy air healthy home at AprilAIRE.com. All right, I want to go real quick before we go to the um, Restoration Industries Global Watchdog Peak and Signal. I got a question. What if you could give us your kind of cliff notes on the future of homes? What what are, what are we going to see as time goes on here, Allison? That that maybe we're not thinking of right now. That we're not thinking of. Oh, I'm thinking of it. <laughs> Aren't, you are. we? Aren't you thinking of it? Maybe I am, but I think a lot of people aren't. Well, um, you know, my my goal is to see homes get better and better, and you know, get building science implemented into the construction of buildings. Well, start back up into the design and the construction of buildings, and the, you know, later on the improvement, uh, the maintenance of buildings, and also how people operate buildings. I mean, there's some some basic things people don't understand and 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 are given bad advice sometimes like um uh there are HVAC technicians out there who will advise people to if they've got a heat pump to set it to emergency heat if the temperature goes the outdoor temperature goes below 40 degrees that's crazy that that means you're going to jack up your energy bill tremendously because um, you're using only strip heat you know, and you've completely turned off the compressor and you're not using the much more efficient heat that still operates below 40 degrees. Anyway, so future of homes, um, people are, are getting more educated and I hope my book helps uh, with that. So uh, people are, and, and we have, we have better materials now than we used to have. We have more air sealing materials and, and water control layer materials. We have, we have lots and lots and lots of free information online. My blog, buildingscience.com, of course, is go-to uh, for all the stuff. Um, uh, Hammer in Hand, a builder in the Pacific Northwest, has a great uh, best practices manual that they put out, which, which you know, I, I talked about that and showed some of their diagrams in the book. There's lots of good information out there. Homes, I, th- I think, are going to improve. We have the monitoring side of it now getting better and better. I have two aware element indoor air quality monitors in my house, and they're not a sponsor or anything. So, um, uh, they, you know, I can look at temperature, relative humidity, carbon dioxide level, um, particulate matter, 2.5 microns, PM 2.5, and uh, chemicals. Um, the chemicals thing is very interesting. I open a bottle of whiskey and it shoots up to 5,000. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the chemicals, you know, just because it spikes isn't always a bad thing, right? Um, right, right. Do you think maybe we're getting – I worry we're overcomplicating things in some ways, that the more we add controls and – uh, you know, the the more we monitor that sometimes 
we may be overcomplicating it. Do you think that's, that's a possibility? Uh, well, for for people like like us, um, I, you know, the monitoring is important because it helps us understand how houses work better, and so we can provide better advice. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, expecting everybody to do the same level of monitoring that I do and that 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 you do and and the other people listening to the show right now probably do. Um, you know, that's that's a little too much, but um, you know. Those of us who are doing that uh, and working in the field can use that information to help Im- improve the design of homes and the things that go into homes and, and the building of homes. And so, I think you know the 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 overcomplication is is a possibility, but um, I guess we'll see. You know that, that goes without. Well, let me let me do this, Cliff. First, do you have any thoughts, questions, final thoughts or questions? Yeah, I, I, I do. And, you know, 10 years ago, you know, one of the things that we discussed was the need when we tightened these homes to have dehumidification, uh, you know, a, a need for that in the home. I just wondered whether your opinion on that has increased, decreased or remained the same. Yeah, no, that that's that's still still true. Um, as we improve homes, uh, improve the building enclosure, make them more airtight and more um, better insulated, the you know we're reducing both the sensible and the latent loads. But the the indoors now um, there's a even the high efficiency variable capacity many split equipment sometimes uh, you know won't handle the the latent loads the dehumidification. Um, if, because, so here's, here's something that uh, a lot of people think, well, yeah, I would say a lot of people think this with many splits, because the variable capacity, you can't oversize them. Well, that's absolutely not true. You can oversize them. Um, and there are probably a lot of many splits in a lot of houses right now that are bottomed out. They are always running at their absolute lowest capacity or almost always running at their lowest capacity because they're oversized. So they're, the people who installed those are getting no benefit from the ability to modulate the capacity of those units. Um, so many splits and all variable capacity systems have to be sized properly and you have to pay attention to what that bottom end is. And, and you don't, you, you want to be able to modulate above that bottom end so you can go down as low as possible. Thanks. Are you seeing any innovations in the HVAC industry, the manufacturing, where they are doing more about dehumidification? Um, well, Thermostore, a great company, makes dehumidifiers, and they have been a sponsor of ours in the past. Um, they uh, just introduced a thermostat um, that monitors dew point, and I think it controls systems on based on dew point, which is a, an amazing um, yeah. new thing. And I just saw this this week, and I haven't really checked it out. So um, uh, take a look at that. I, I think that, that that's something that a lot of people in the dehumidification world, Lou Harriman, for example, you know Lou, um, has been asking for that for a while. And so I, I think maybe maybe now we're getting some controls that will look at dew point. At least thermostores looking at that. I love my thermostore unit here. It's just, yeah. it's been fantastic to uh, yeah. be able to keep my, I don't even need the air conditioning anymore. When I, if I properly dehumidify with that, the thermostore unit we have there, it's a whole house dehumidifier. We also can ventilate. Um, it, it's just spectacular. We use the 
the air conditioning maybe one or two weeks a year. But uh, hey, let's go to the the uh, the, the restoration industry's global watchdog, Peak and Sigma. So uh, no, I, I enjoyed listening to Allison. Hey, Allison, uh, should we start to talk about food now? I mean, you know, <laughs> the last time we got together, boy, we had quite a feed there in Atlanta, huh? We did. That was great. Yeah, we and and you and you posted that, and uh, boy, there was there was a lot of activity on the social media on that. Now, listen, I enjoyed this show. I think the point that Cliff brought up that you talked about about the demonification, I think you're going to start to see more and more in that. Um, you know, a, a lot of that has had been developed for uh, crawl spaces and things of that nature over the years, but now I, I think particularly in these hot, humid climates, it seems that the the, the air conditions that are in there sometimes just can't handle the high the high peak seasons and can't handle the loads and that and that that probably creates problems so uh, maybe you're going to start to see more of that out there um so uh joe i uh you know um at, well allison i'm not sure did you make a decision allison whether you're going to come down to the to the andy uh, andy s uh, symposium for the winter break in naples and uh in january oh. I'm gonna see if I can get there. Uh, I haven't made a decision yet. All right. Well, I hope you're gonna. I hope you're gonna make it. Uh, I know uh, Rick Sims. They 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 got a bunch of your books, and yep. uh, I've already been promoting them. There's a couple of local guys who live down here in the area who want to get them, and I think they're gonna. They don't sell them out by then. They're certainly gonna make them available to sell them at the show. So it'd be great if you come down. A lot of your buddies are gonna be there. I've been working on putting a couple. Of, I'm actually gonna have private dinner parties all week. And I got one in particular early on where I was listening to the first part of the show is finalizing the menu selection. And I had to make special arrangements for the Z-Man and uh, Cliff, of course, our uh, our buddy from across the pond also. So uh, I always like to take care of all my friends. And Joe, one of these days, uh, you're going to have to be able to get on the plane and come down here. You know, we miss you not seeing you these uh, last few years at these winter breaks down here in Florida. All your friends are down here. So, uh, but Allison, it'd be great to have you come down. To, you know, the pioneers are going to be talking about all kinds of stuff. I know which will be a high interest to you. And uh, we're going to have this show on December 2nd, Joe, with Rick Sims. He's going to kind of give a little report of what's been going on down here with the hurricane in southwest Florida. Yeah. I mean, everyone is so busy down here. There's uh, They all have all kinds of issues trying to get supply parts for all the HVAC systems and, you know, just general construction. But I think... Uh, a lot of the industry people have really been doing a yeoman's job down there and, uh, you know, uh, get the work done and bring the area back. It was, it was really sad. It was, uh, some of the areas got, got hit really, really hard. They say it's going to affect the snowbirds this year that we, we're probably going to have less people come in the peak season only because there, there's not going to be any places for them to stay. You know, a lot of these condos got hit and it's going to take probably to the following year before many of them are built and back up. And, uh, there are a lot of, code provisions which i think have are going to be taken into account now i think that's pretty important you know this happened uh obviously after hurricane andrew in 92 but after hurricane charlie in 2004 a lot of co- uh, code changes and i think there's going to be lessons learned from uh, from ian also and we're trying to put together and i'm pretty sure we're going to be announcing this fairly soon a post conference event around the winter break on the thursday after the main conference which would be a multidisciplinary panel on uh, the lessons learned from the response and recovery to the hurricane with a lot of people in Florida who are working on the ground. And I think that'll be very high interest. I'm hoping that the Z-Man can stay over and help moderate that. And then we'll roll into the, uh, to the highlight show that we're going to be doing on uh, the 27th, I think it is, 
of February to report on that. And we'll get some really good feedback on that too from a lot of IEQA people that'll be here and IICRC, REA, you know, all the different associations will be fairly represented and a lot of people from the HVAC industry, architects, home builders. So um, anyway, it's, it's really exciting. And uh, I appreciate the support that IEQ Radio really gives consistently with all of these programs that we put on. We appreciate you uh, supporting us too, Pete. Allison, he brought up something that I've been hearing more of. I'm not, I'm not seeing it in my own area, but um, we had Nate Adams on recently and, and others have mentioned there's been, it's been a little tough to get HVAC equipment in that, that it seems like it's a little tight right now. Are you seeing that? Um, yeah, I think things have gotten better in the, in the last year than they were a couple years ago, a year and a half ago. Um, but um, yeah, there's there's still supply chain issues, and of course now we've got inflation ramping prices up. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's a tough time to be a builder. Each other out with the inflation going up, people won't be buying as much, and so we'll build up more of a stockpile and be easier to well, get. Well, you up. know that that really down here, uh, a lot of the people who live in Florida, particularly the condos, they have contracts for general maintenance for a lot of the air handling companies. And these guys are just buried, uh, you know, with all the storm related stuff over and above just the normal maintenance that they would do. But I know uh, at the at the conf- at the winter break conference, the Andes Symposium, I mean, the main sponsors there are going to be uh, Mitsubishi, uh, IEQ Madison with Thermostore, uh, Santa Fe, uh, Train, you know, all those folks. I'm talking your language here now, Allison. You know all those guys, right? Oh yeah. Anyway, yeah. they're 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 kind of the headliners, and then all the other usual suspects, and you know who are involved in moisture and water and the Sun Belt and uh, um, the Tramix people, and there's quite a few other ones. Uh, are all going to be down here too, so there's going to be a good, uh, you know, be a lot of availability, and they'll be able to tell us by January what's going on. Are there still a shortage? Are they getting parts out or not? because they're a lot of the main suppliers to the builders and architects in the industry in general. So anyway, I hope to see you down there, Allison. And uh, I did enjoy the show. I don't get to call in that often unless I involve setting a show up, but I did call in today to listen to you. All right. All right. Thank you, Pete. <laughs> hey, by the way, Allison, I just want to uh, throw out kudos to you for the, um, the energy Vanguard blog. If, if any of our audience doesn't get that, you really need to get it. Um, his writing is just so clear and concise, and, and you're able to get complex topics um, kind of boiled down into easy-to-understand language. And I, I followed that Energy Vanguard blog since you put it out, and I'll continue to, and I want people to, to do the same. Before we go, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add? Um, no, I don't think so. I think we covered it all. That's, that's the whole book, so uh, nobody needs to buy the book now. Nah, hey, we might. We'll hey, 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 Joe. Yeah, buddy. So somebody just asked in the chat box, where um, is there information on the Florida conference you're talking about? I'll, I'll, I'll send the link to Cliff and make sure Cliff puts it in the blog. So the gentleman who asked that question, when the blog comes out next Wednesday or Thursday, they'll have a link in there. And you can go to the site, uh, register for the event. We have a... a room the special room reservation there'll be a link for that all the details the speaker the sessions everything will be there uh on the uh on the website it's a comfort zone one i know a climate zone one uh 
Com is actually the website. You probably go to it and find it, but we'll, we'll put the link in there. And um, anyway, uh, look forward to seeing everybody who's going to be Sounds attending. The call. I, I can't think of a finer gentleman to, uh, to help, you know, uh, as he's slowly uh, retiring slowly, but surely the Andy Oss building symposium, great guy. And uh, looking forward to hopefully maybe I'll make it. We'll see Pete. My back's getting a little better. Allison Bales, thank you so much for joining us today. Cliff, any final thoughts or questions for you? Nope, I'm good. Thanks, Jeff. All right. What I want to do here is just say thanks again to our guest this week's guest, Dr. Allison Bales, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls, our sponsors, our loyal audience. And next week, we've got Lisa White on IAQ and Passive House. She was one of the speakers at Joe's summer camp. I heard great things about her and I look forward to talking to her next week on the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.